Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, before we get started here, the kids, fourth through sixth graders, you are released to go to your class. Um, we love you, but you're also welcome to go downstairs. If you want to stay, that's okay too. Talk to your parents. So, <laughs> but we're going to dive in. Um, welcome to uh, the second service for those of you that were initially trying to make it to the first service and didn't realize that it was daylight savings time. Um, welcome. This is part of the benefit of having two services now. Woo! So um, this morning we are going to continue through our series in the book of Psalms called Knowing and Enjoying God. And we have come to Psalm 67 this morning. And so this is an ancient song that was written uh, around 3,000 years ago. And yes, Psalms were songs. And so we just sung one of um, uh, just preaching through uh, the, the scriptures and preaching through the Psalms, we also get to sing a lot about them. And so um, you, you will notice that what we just sang was about God blessing us and the blessing of the Lord. And, and so we get to sing about these songs um, that were also written, again, 3,000 years ago. But even then, it was designed to link God's people with the relevance of his promise and purpose as they remember his past faithfulness and his future revelation. And all of this informs the why behind the what for them then and us now. In other words, I want you to see that this song is ultimately about God's purpose on the earth in and through his people. Like we can read and pray and even sing this song today with deep meaning for our lives because it's never been more relevant to us. Uh, it's never been more relevant than it is today for us. So this morning, I want you to see the foundational thread that binds us as God's people uh, to the heartbeat of this song and its promises, okay? And so I, 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 my hope is that, my hope and prayer is that this uh, would ignite your hearts with the why behind the what to fully enter into the purpose that God's placed right in front of you as individuals and for us as a church. And so... This isn't just a song. I want you to see that this is a mission statement for God's people. But it's not just something we adhere to. It's something that we sing with our lives. We sing this, not just because it's a thing that we do, but it's who we are. It's from the depths of what God has created us for and purposed us with. That's what we get when we align with the psalmists. We're singing from the depths of our souls unto the heart of God, and it is worship to him. And so each week we mention our own mission statement as a church, right? You heard it earlier today, that we exist to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. And so I want you to see, and I want you to hear, and I want you to receive this ancient song and how it fuels this foundational purpose. And honestly, not just for our church, not just for you, but for every true Christian, this song fuels our purpose. And so this morning, we're going to walk through Psalm 67. And as we do, I want to point out four foundational truths that fuel our purpose or our mission, okay? Okay. So number one, number one thing I want you to get here is uh, you were created for the blessing of God's affection and approval. 
okay? You were created for the blessing of God's affection and approval. Not just an, in, an empty, hollow, ideal version of this, or an idealistic version, but a substantial truth that you can hang your hat on. That he truly does approve of you and is affectionate toward you. My prayer is that none of you leave here this morning without having received that reality. Number two, the only way to receive God's blessing and approval, this is what makes it substantial, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? That's number three. There is no greater purpose in the universe than the Great Commission. There's no greater purpose in the universe than the Great Commission. And then number four, God's blessing finds its fullness and completion when it's shared in joy. You've been blessed to bless. And so this morning, I want to commission you into that ministry. And so here's what I want you to get, though. If you get nothing else from this, here's what I want you to get. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You've been blessed to bless. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And that's an impactful statement, and I'm going to flesh it out and explain sort of what I mean by that as we go. We'll come back to that one. But 23 years ago, I was confronted by the reality that I did not really love or worship God. Okay? The language most people would use to describe me 23 years ago and the state that I was in would be unsaved, lost, a non-Christian, someone far from God, right? And that was all true, but the even deeper truth, the real heart of it all, was that I didn't love or worship God. It was really just that simple. Like you can kind of like, we got a lot of terms, got a lot of labels, but at the end of the day, I just didn't love God. I didn't, I didn't worship him. And, and, but... If you had asked me, if I was a Christian, I would have boldly said yes. I would have stuck my chest out. I would have raised my American chin. And I would have said, I am a Christian. And then been like, pick on me if you want. Right? But for me, it was just part of my Southern heritage. I was Christian in the same way that I was American. But my heart was far from God. I didn't really understand who Jesus truly was, or what he'd even done for me, right? I, I didn't love him, and I didn't know the extent of his love for me. My life was about earning approval and earning respect, proving that I had what it took to be a man, but in essence, I was only the center of my own worship. God was not. I was about my own kingdom, and I was far from him. I was distant and even cold toward him. In many ways, I used him in order to gain respect from others. Because in that culture, in the culture that I grew up in, being a godly man was a respectable thing. But it was empty because I didn't love him. I didn't worship him. I didn't even know who Jesus really was and what he'd done for me. It was only when I met a community of people who really loved and worshipped God that I was even able to see just how cold my own heart was. But they didn't shame me, they just introduced me to Jesus. 
Like, not just the idea of him, but the actual living Savior King, the bridegroom. And I experienced the unconditional, unrelenting, steadfast, never-ending love of the Most High King and Creator. He was alive and he was real. I saw it in their eyes and I was like, man, what is going on with you? I want that. And they introduced me. And I was told that because of what Jesus had done for me, that there was nothing I could do to make him love me anymore. And there was nothing that I have done that could make him love me any less. What? That messed my world up. I lived on a pride-shame spectrum that was about my own abilities to measure up. That was incomprehensible to me. At the same time, though, the Spirit of God met me there. And he set me free with the grace that Jesus offers. But he didn't set me free to run away from him, but to run to him. In fact, if you're running away from Jesus, that's not a symptom of your freedom. It's a symptom of your bondage. Right? And so when I was set free, man, I sprinted towards Jesus. Doesn't mean I didn't trip and fall. I did a lot. I still do. But because of grace, I can stand back up. And he's right there with me. And, and I continue to run after him. And you know why? Because I was created for him. And so were you. So, so first point, you were created for the blessing of God's affection and approval. Look with me now at, at Psalm 67, verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. Now we opened 2023 with this. It may sound familiar to you, and if it does, it's because it was how we began uh, the year. Um, but we were referencing this passage, which is repeated in Scripture. This is, a, this is another uh, reference to this passage that we preached out of all the way back in number six. And I'm going to talk about that here in a little bit. But I want you to understand that whenever you see, first and foremost, the word Selah in the Psalms, it's telling you to pause and pray. That's essentially what Selah means, okay? It's an encouragement to take in what you just read or sang. It means that what you just read or what you just sang is significant in a way you're probably not really understanding, Right? It's kind of like a behold, don't miss this. Take this in. Drink it into your soul. Like if you've ever been in a moment of worship and you, you, you sung a powerful verse, we, we tend to just want to move on and just glean as much as we, information as we possibly can. Meanwhile, our soul is like, what is happening? And it can get set aside and we just operate here. When you say la, you take what you've just heard, read, or even sung and connect it here. That's what Selah means. It's an encouragement to do that. Pause, pray, take it in. Let the power of what you've just sung wash over you. Let the Spirit wash it into you. So then it's, there's this time of meditation, praying over the power of it, lingering there in this sort of like sonic ambient space with the Spirit of God. And so this ancient song, it comes out swinging in verse 1, right? with a direct reference to this blessing that God told Moses hundreds of years before. And he tells Moses to tell 
Aaron and, and the priesthood to pray over all of God's people and to even sing it over them. They've just come out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the desert. And so he's told Moses that you need to now tell the priesthood to sing this, pray this, declare this all over my people. You're no longer slaves. This is your identity. This is who you are. And so when we read this in Psalms, again, written hundreds of years after that exodus from slavery, they're being reminded, they're saying, he's saying, Selah, remember the context of this blessing. He's connecting the dots to the God-given commission that he gave his people hundreds of years before in, in number six. So number six, read with me what it said. Number six, 22 verse through 27. Verse 22, it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. Former slaves, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. I know you're in a desert right now. I know everything's uncertain. I know that you don't understand the meaning of it all. I know he feels distant to you. Verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace. Even in the midst of all the chaos and craziness and uncertainty. Verse 27, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. There's identity connected into this. In other words, this is how they operate in their identity as God's people. This is how they receive his ultimate blessing. This is, you guys, this is the cry of every human heart. This is the fundamental issue in our fallen world. We're distant from God. We're fallen from intimate glory. We're striving, toiling, stressing to find fulfillment, approval, and wholeness. We're waffling in this torment between pride and shame. But the only way we can find true peace, true shalom, which is the Hebrew word, which means wholeness, restoration, the only way is through the affectionate approval of your creator. That's it. Everything else is hollow and counterfeit. Everything else is just a temporary band-aid over an eternally significant bullet wound. This is the solution. And so the psalmist points back to Moses, a hundred years back to Moses, but Moses was pointing them back even further, hundreds of years to when God established a, cov a covenant with Abram. And he says in Genesis 12, verse 2 through 3, so way even further back, like the Old Testament of the Old Testament, okay? And he says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that, there's a reason for it, it's not so that you will be awesome. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Whew. So verse 1 of Psalm 67 pulls this covenantal, like, like it pulls the covenantal laces of God's promises that embrace us all into this redemptive story. And this blessing answers the fundamental cry of every human heart. 
And so this song reminds all of God's faith-filled people down through the ages, from his blood-bought, spirit-filled church down through to the faithful remnant who received this blessing given through the prophets, through Moses, through Abraham, even Noah, all the way down, all the way back. He's ordained and commissioned a people to be his people and the means through which he brings about this blessing of redemption and restoration upon the earth. And he sets aside a people and it's like they're conduits of his grace and goodness to the world. I told you, you're a part of something bigger. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your family so that you will be a blessing. It's not because you're so great. It's because I'm so great. It's not because you're so great. It's because I am. Hundreds of years later, Moses, remember what I told Abraham? Remember that blessing? Yeah, that's you and Israel. Don't forget it. Speak it. Sing it. Memorize it. Write it on your heart. Receive it. Some of you won't, but some of you will. It's not because you're so great. It's because I am. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace. Make this your identity. Put my name on you. This is true blessing. So when the opening line of Psalm 67 drops in the choral procession with, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, this is what we're drinking in. This is what they're reminded of. This is what comes, the Spirit would have brought to their remembrance. It's where their hearts and minds were to pause and pray in that sonic ambient space where the Spirit does his connection work, his unifying work, both in the individual and the community, and bringing, drawing, lacing them into something bigger than themselves. And again, this blessing, this blessing has not dissipated over the centuries. Like, most promises tend to lose their import the older they get, right? Like, you think about something that's like, ah, oh, man, I kind of forgot about that. I haven't really, like, is that even happening? Like, it was something that was said way back when. But, you know, the good news about the, the promises of God is that they're not dependent on humanity to fulfill them. He is the one who does it. He does it. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to receive it. Like I said, some of Israel received this, some didn't. Some people who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ now receive it. Some don't. Right? But this promise does not leave, lose its significance the older it gets. Not this blessing. It just keeps getting more and more substantial and authoritative. Just look down through history. Like almost as if we're headed, it seems, to an ultimate realization of this blessing. It's almost like we're headed towards ultimate wholeness, restoration, and peace. Ultimate shalom, because we are. And that's because this, this whole promise is based upon God's faithfulness. And it's all accomplished at the cross. The ultimate fulfillment, the victory that, that brought us into true peace and shalom happened at the cross. The veil was split. The invitation to experience this blessing is no longer mitigated to a particular group of people, but to all, all, all people, all nations, all ethnicities, 
Not just a select few. Everybody. We've all been invited to receive this blessing of identity, promise, and purpose in Jesus Christ. This is what Romans 8 and Galatians 4 are talking about when they speak of being adopted into the family of God. Not as slaves, but as sons who are able to cry out to God as, and call him Daddy. The creator of the universe is your daddy. He's not a slave master. He's not a taskmaster. He's not even your boss. He's your daddy if you're in Christ. And I'll tell you, the difference between someone who receives this blessing and someone who rejects it and just kind of associates with it, the difference between the remnant even in Israel in the Old Testament of those who by faith received the promise and those that didn't were the ones who acted like slaves and the ones who acted like sons. It means you've been grafted into this deep heritage of redemption and restoration, which is why this blessing is more relevant for us today than it ever has been in history, because, and this is point number two, you ready? The only way to receive God's blessing and approval is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, even these Old Testament promises were always all about Jesus. It's always been all about Jesus. Look at Psalm 67, verse 2. I love this. Look at verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. All right, so let's, let's break this verse down a bit, okay? There's some gold in here. I want you to get it, okay? So track with me. This is what it says. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, right? So that your way, okay? And how many know that God's way is the only way? It's the way. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. He made that clear, right? And so Jesus isn't just a way, he's the way. Because he's God's way and the only way to God. And so again, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth. Say known. And here's the best part. That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. The phrase saving power here is actually one word in Hebrew. I love this so much, guys. It's the Hebrew word Yahshua. I, I, I didn't come up with that. In Aramaic, it's pronounced Yeshua. In Greek, it's pronounced Jesus. In English, it's transliterated and pronounced Jesus. <laughs> Y'all, you, you're not tracking with this. Here, let me, let, me, let, me, let me give you the, the J-A-V, the John Allen version. <laughs> Seriously, this, this would be an accurate translation. You ready? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your Jesus among all nations. What? Take that in. Drink that in. 
Guys, listen, the only way to receive God's blessing and approval is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is power in the name of Jesus. He's always been the Savior. He's always been the means of saving power that everyone by faith looks. They looked forward to him in the Old Testament. We look back to what he did at the cross in the New Testament. The cross is the center of all eternity. It's always been about Jesus. It's never been about rituals and ceremonies or who you're related to. It's always been about who all of that points to. The question is, will you receive him? Will you get to know him and his way? In fact, the early church was known as the way. Before they even became known as Christians, they were known as followers of the way. Jesus is the only way to receive God's blessing and approval. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is God's saving power among not only Israel, but all peoples and nations. This has been the heartbeat of the scriptures from the beginning. And so it's so easy to hear that stuff and it gets so, we almost become numb to it if you've been around church or you grew up around it and you're kind of like, yeah, I get that. But there are so many radical implications of this that answer all of the social confusion surrounding the gospel. And we're going to get to that. And I want you to see this. Because the faithful in the Old Testament, again, they received the saving powers. They looked forward and we look back. But it's not just about salvation. It's about the blessing that salvation brings in Christ. This is about receiving his approval and his affection and the identity you have in him. It's about receiving his blessing to bless Guys, you're going to have a hard time blessing other people if you've not received the blessing. Which means this is about, ultimately, not just receiving his love, but receiving his commission. Which leads me to point three. There is no greater purpose in the universe than the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations. Look at Psalm 67, verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all peoples, all the people praise you. So not just Israel, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That was a radical statement to a self-centered and nationalistic people who thought that they were better than other nations. And don't you doubt for a second that that was the context in Israel. It definitely was. That tends to be the, the, the... gravitational pull on the human heart that makes us think that we're better than other people and that even God says you're better than them because we compare. This is the worldly pride-shame paradigm that secular society operates off of and Jesus through his gospel and grace is pulling you off of that pride-shame spectrum, that waffling seesaw of torment and says hide yourself in me and what I say about you, not even what you think about you, but what I have to say about you is the only thing that matters. It's not what they say, it's not what you say, it's what I say. So tune in to hear what he has to say about you in Christ. Israel pridefully felt like they were better. They saw other nations as the enemy. They were people who were ruled by demons and hated the ways of the Lord, and they were not wrong. When you read the Old Testament and they talk about the nations, okay, you got to understand that in this context, all the nations were ruled by demonic powers and principalities. That was real. And that is not, uh, today, 
outside of Christ, that's still the case. Remember the Old Testament story of Jonah and the whale? Jonah was a, a nationalistic prophet who loved to proclaim God's blessing over Israel, and he detested all of Israel's enemies. He hated the nations, man. They surrounded, the surrounding nations that surrounded Israel, especially Nineveh, Jonah hated them. Nineveh was the number one enemy in Jonah's day, and Jonah hated them. But God told Jonah to go and call them to repentance and belief. Almost as if he were blessed to be a blessing or something. Right? And so Jonah's like, no. <laughs> he didn't want to. Not because he was afraid of Nineveh. He runs away because he hated Nineveh. He ran the opposite direction of Nineveh, hopped on a ship, and took off over the ocean to get as far from Nineveh and God's desire to reach the wicked as he possibly could. Jonah's self-centered, self-righteous, self-aggrandizing attitude had no room for God's grace and ultimate purpose for his blessing. Jonah didn't just want justice, he wanted vengeance against Nineveh. He disagreed with God's offer of redemption, and by disagreeing with God's offer of redemption to the nations, he also disagreed with God's offer of redemption over his own life. Forgive others as you have been forgiven. It's important. Because Jonah wasn't any better than Nineveh. At the end of the day, Jonah, Israel, you, me, we aren't better than the rest of the world. Because of God's blessing, actually, if anything, we're more responsible to steward it well. If you know Christ and you've been, you've been graced with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't make you better. It means you've been empowered, equipped. You've been engaged, you've been embraced, you've been equipped, you've been empowered, you've been encouraged, and now you're responsible to steward all of that well by doing what? Making disciples. Going. Loving. You see, while the heart of God does indeed burn hot with justice, you hear me? It burns even hotter with grace. Ezekiel. 33, verse 11. You don't believe me? God tells Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. <sighs> I have no pleasure in their destruction. 1 Timothy 2, 4, New Testament. It says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter's talking to an impatient church, and they're wondering why Jesus hasn't come back and stopped all the wickedness and injustice in the world. And then Peter writes to them, and he says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, don't get this twisted. A lot of people get confused by this stuff. That doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. Humanity, hear me, humanity is not entitled to salvation. All we deserve is condemnation. But Jesus does deserve the spoils of his sacrifice. And we've been commissioned to go that he may have it. And guess what? 
you're the spoils. You are the fruit. You got, you, I want you to hear every single one of you, every seat that you sit in, you are sitting in the seat of someone else's sacrifice. People have received this commission to go and they've paved the way and they've brought the gospel to bear even in this continent. In this church, we are all standing on the shoulders of a cloud of witnesses who have pointed the world to Jesus Christ. And that is, this is the fruit. We're operating in it. You are the joy that was set before Christ it was the glory of God and the way God was glorified in him as he endured the cross and despising its shame. He moves into that place of sacrifice and death. Why? You! <laughs> because this is what it's all about. Now, one of the questions that always arises in the midst of all this is one question of, but, but doesn't God already know who will be saved and who won't? Right? Right? Who's elect? Who's not? Doesn't God already know that? Yes. But you don't. The scriptures are saturated with the most hardened and wicked hearts being ultimately softened and redeemed through the faithful witness of God's people who resolved to be conduits of blessing rather than curses. Resolved to consistently pray and preach and witness and testify and be patient and long-suffering and bearing and enduring, all because Jesus is that way with us. You don't go, well, they must not be God's elect. What? You know what I'm convinced of? If you're in front of me, you're God's elect. If you got breath in your lungs and you're in front of me, he must have put you there. Amen? Amen? And so this is the power of realizing that, yes, okay, God will judge all. And no one apart from the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ will stand. They will all be sent to an everlasting condemnation in hell. And, and it's right and it's just. And, and you need to realize that nobody in hell will want to be in heaven. Seriously, think about this. That might sound a little crazy to you. You're like, well, I don't know about that. That's a little weird. That's not everybody, you know. If that's strange, it's because you're not thinking about heaven and hell correctly. See, heaven is heavenly because of God's presence in it. Nobody in hell wants to be where Jesus is. It's a place of gnashing of teeth and, and, and rejection and rebellion. They've rejected him. They've abandoned him. And now you can be sure that they don't want to be in hell. Like hell is not a place where you like have a rock party with all of your friends, right? That's not what hell is. Hell is hellish. And nobody in hell wants to be there, but they don't want to be where Jesus is. They've proven it with their life of rebellion against him. They don't love God. They don't worship him. And heaven is a place of eternal worship. That doesn't mean that you're just standing in, in a line going kumbaya all the time. That's not what it is. It's we worship through like all good, beautiful, amazing things, right? It's all, this is, all good things in this world are just a taste of eternal worship that is to come, right? So why, uh, this is why one of the most insane things anyone can ever say is that they're going to live in rebellion to God now and then get right with him later. Human heart doesn't work like that, guys. It does not. 
Like, rebellion doesn't get better over time. It gets worse. Like, if you've got any inkling of surrender or repentance in your heart this morning, I am begging you to lean into that right now. Like, that's a sign of his very present mercy in your life. Don't, do not dismiss him. Receive him while you still can. Again, the recompense of the wicked is good, and it's just, and it's right. But don't get that twisted. Like, don't think that God delights in that. Like, too often, people are just like, they throw in a big party when, when thing, people, wickedness dies. And they think that God's right there with them, gloating. He's not. It's good, and it's just, but he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. The heartbeat of God throughout the Old and New Testament is this. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Process that. Process the beauty and goodness of God on the throne. And of the nations singing for joy. And about 22 years ago, about one year after I became a Christian, I was given a book by some obscure pastor named John Piper. <laughs> and the book was called, Let the Nations Be Glad. I'd only recently been walking with Jesus, and I was acutely aware that I had not actually loved God or worshipped him, but over the past year I had received his love and grace for me in Christ, and my soul was lit up with worship. But I'd become also acutely aware then of how far so many people around the world were from him. And this book helped me to put language to what I was experiencing. Like sometimes I'm like, yeah, they're getting what they deserve. And then I'm like, I don't think that's God's heart. It is and it's not and there's tension and I don't know how to deal with this. And this book actually launched directly out of Psalm 67 verse 4. And the main premise of the book was missions exists because worship doesn't. And that hit hard for me, man. Like, and, and it still does hit hard. Like, worship is the issue, not just behavior. Worship. That's what God desires. Piper put it like this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. I kind of, I, don't you want to just say Selah after that? Like just <laughs> so he desires their redemption from the inside out. He desires that they receive grace through faith in Christ alone and are given new hearts and a new mind and are welcome to join in the rescue mission and to even in the struggle between the old man and the new man to put the old man to death and lean into the goodness of God and worship. And when they trip and fall and stumble seven times, they get up seven times, 77 times. And they've got a community, a gospel community that surrounds them and walks with them and points to the main purpose and gets it off of yourself and your lack thereof and looks to the one who's all-sufficient and the purpose he's placed in front of us. This is the church. It's why he commanded and empowered us with the great commission of Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And he says, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, this is after he's resurrected and he's about to ascend into heaven. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That was radical. 
That was radical to them. They didn't think it was for anybody but Israel. Baptizing them, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the whole reason our church exists. This is the whole reason any true church exists throughout history. This is, this is the reason Jesus hasn't returned and brought all wickedness to an end. And I say this is the reason for the church to exist. The reason the church exists is worship. Amen? This is a conduit of worship. It's a conduit of grace. It's how we can most glorify God on this side of the planet. And I've told you before, you know, there's only one good thing. There's only one good thing that you can do in this life that won't be better in heaven. Only one thing. You know what it is? The Great Commission. Every good thing you experience on earth now is going to be better, like 10 billion times better, 10 billion years from now in heaven in the presence of God. There's one thing you won't get to do. Lead someone who is far from God to salvation in Christ. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And it's the whole reason he hasn't come back yet. His delay is for no other reason than because he desires those far from him to turn to him and receive grace in Christ. It's not because he's waiting for some prophetic fulfillments to take place first. Guys, there's nothing that stands in his way. Nothing but his desire. The only thing that's keeping him from coming back is his desire for those who are far from him to turn and receive his grace. His heart breaks for the lost and he desires to break your heart for them as well. To not be so preoccupied with our own little kingdoms that we forget and lose sight of his kingdom and his righteousness. That his kingdom would come and his will be done in Virginia Beach as it is in heaven. And again, don't get this twisted. There's so much confusion about in our world about what the gospel even is. They hear things like God loves the lost or God loves the whole world, and, and they think that that must mean that we should set our differences aside and just get along. But John 3.16 makes it clear that, yes, God does love the world, but the way in which he loves the world is by giving his only son. And John 3.18 says this. Whenever you say John 3.16, you should read all the way to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the gospel. This is the good news that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die and he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life and it's an eternal life with god almighty with the father intimate relationship and it's an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die it starts the moment we place our faith and our hope in what christ did for us at the cross the veil is split and he gives you his spirit and he fills you up and he changes you from the inside out and he gives you a new heart and he gives you a new mind and he draws you into the new creation he has declared over you and he blesses you. Why? So you can be awesome? No! So you can be a blessing. Most of the confusion surrounding Christianity comes from a sense of entitlement to his love and approval. This sounds harsh, but it's actually the foundation for his grace and mercy and goodness. Like questions like, why is there evil in the world? Why, why do good things happen to bad people? 
Like, isn't it narrow-minded to assert my beliefs on somebody who grew up in a different part of the world with a different religion? Like, is it wrong to tell somebody they're going to hell because of their sexual orientation? Is that true? Is that a thing? There's so much confusion in society. But I'll tell you what, there isn't really any controversy surrounding these subjects because it all boils down to one foundational truth that has so obscured these topics that it's taken our eyes off of the main thing and it made us completely miss the heart of God and the point behind it all. That everyone, everyone stands condemned before a holy God. Not because they're Muslim, not because they're gay, not because of their political affiliations, but because they haven't received Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, this is extremely offensive to a world that feels entitled to heaven. The issue I I mentioned earlier, all of them, they're only controversial to a society that's dismissed the fact that we all deserve condemnation outside of grace through faith in Christ. But that's the entire point of the gospel. Like, it's not good news if you think you deserve it already. Our redemption isn't because we're so great. It's because God is. And so what about people who haven't heard? What what, what about people in the deepest reaches of Indonesia or Malaysia where they barely have access to the gospel? And and some have no access at all. What about them? Are are they headed for hell? Yes. How is that fair? Because just like you and me, they are without excuse. Romans 1, 19 through 21. Don't look at me, this is the Bible. For for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's you and me, guys. This is not a passage to be wielded in self-righteousness over the world. Like, this is you. This is me. But for the grace of God. The question remains, the biggest question is, why me? I'll go ahead and help you out with that one. I don't know. I don't know, but I've got eternity to thank him for it. And I worship him. Does that mean that God has abandoned the nations? No. That's the, whole, that's the whole premise. That's the whole redemptive line. That's the whole point. That's why we're tracing this thing all the way back to Genesis. He's, his heart beats for the Great Commission. Romans 10, verse 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
greatest purpose in the universe. And it's not just about the person in India or Indonesia. It's also about going to your neighbor who's been immersed in this secular society that so twisted the gospel into a religion of works righteousness that it's so far from the truth it might as well be Islam. Just because they got the banner of Christianity over their head, they might, it could have been like me. Thank God that people didn't see me and go, oh, he's just a good old boy. He's already been reached. No, I hadn't. I, I, I had been reached, but I wasn't embraced. And so they don't need the gospel of Fox News or CNN or secular society or prosperity. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need the good news of the kingdom of God. They need to hear from those who cry out from the depths of their own souls as the psalmist does, aligning with God Almighty, saying, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations let the peoples praise you oh god let all the peoples praise you let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth and then verse 5 repeats verse 3 again like a sandwich of this thing and it says let the peoples praise you oh god let all the peoples praise you all of them God's not simply after adherence. He's after transformation and a renewed heart. He's after worshipers. He's not looking for people who are already pretty close so they can fake it. He's looking for radical transformation from the inside out because that's what the Spirit does when he engages you and grips you. And that leads me to the final point. Point four, God's blessing finds its fullness and completion when it's shared in joy. You've been blessed to bless. Psalm 67, verse 6. Verse 6 and 7 says this, the last two verses. The earth has yielded its increase. Get the image. Think of it. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Look, you know what this is saying? It's like, drop back to verse 1. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us. That was a request. God, may you do it. They're recognizing hundreds of years before that this was the blessing. And so they're saying, God bless us. And then they look back at the, the, the history and timeline of God's people and the ne- over the next hundred years. And what they see is a harvest. The earth has yielded its increase. The fruit is the result of the blessing and the result of being blessed. What do you do when you're blessed? You share the blessing. They recognize that they've been blessed. Psalm 67 is reflecting on the fruit of what God's done since his promise to Abraham, who was one person, and then Moses, a mighty nation, and he brings them out of slavery, and he's faithful to them all for what? To bless the families of the earth. And so here they are in Psalms, still the Old Testament, and they're seeing God is making good on his promise, and he will continue to. And so when we look back across the landscape of redemptive history, we can say the same thing, but we can say it with even louder praise to the ends of the earth, because in many ways, you are the ends of the earth. I don't know, anybody from Jerusalem in here? Gospel's come a long way. Church is growing. Because you sit in the seat of other sacrifice and you've been blessed to be blessed. 
You've been saved to lead others to salvation. You've been discipled to make disciples. And this is how we glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the purpose. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, Piper writes it, he puts it like this. He, he, he takes the definition of love that has been so jacked up in our society, and he puts some traction to it, right? And he says this, love is helping people toward the greatest beauty, the highest value, the deepest satisfaction, the most lasting joy, the biggest reward, the most wonderful friendship, and the most overwhelming worship. Love is helping people toward God. Woo! That's why the local church is the greatest institution in history. That's what we do. This is the heart behind the challenge we issued at the beginning of the year to identify one more person in your life who's far from God but close to you. One more person in this city who you can begin praying for and looking for opportunities to share the gospel and introduce them to Jesus and invite them into gospel community here at Risen. Like we talked about doing it by Easter, but we've already seen God move in power already, and it's been pretty amazing, praise God, right? But I want to I pose this question to you again. Like, who's your one? Who's one more person who's far from God but close to you? Often it's not the one you're expecting. In fact, one of my favorite holidays is St. Patrick's Day. Coming in hot, right? And so this week we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Um, but my, it's not my favorite because I like the color green. I do. I do like the color green. It's my favorite color. But that's not the reason. It's not because of the green beer or the leprechauns or the shamrock marathon that will be shutting down the oceanfront, right? Like, that's great. That's a cool thing. Marathon, some of you might even be running in it. I don't know. But it's because of who St. Patrick was that I love this holiday. It's because of the race he ran for the Lord and what he represents, you see, Patrick was born, and I'm going to give you, I, I, I just, I can't let St. Patrick's Day come and go without refocusing. I'm like on a mission to recapture the beauty of this holiday. Patrick was born in the name, with the name Maywin Sakat, and he was born around 387 AD, and he was actually not born in Ireland. He was born in Britain. And Britain was a part of the Roman Empire at the time, and Maywin lived on the far edges of the Christianized world at the time. But across the water were these Irish Druids who were very far from God, and they were ruled by demonic powers and principalities. Okay? And so as a young boy, Maywin was kidnapped by Irish raiders, and he was enslaved and abused for years. Early on, he hated the Irish, and he cursed them, and he even cursed God for allowing it all to happen. He writes a lot about these things. But slowly his heart began to soften toward the Lord and eventually toward even his Irish captors. And so he eventually escapes back to Britain when he was about 22 years old, and he goes through this series of epic adventures to get back. And it was clearly that God's hand was on him to even get him back home. But then when he gets back home, he's so thankful for the good news of Jesus that his family had actually raised him with that he changes his name from Maywin to Patrick which literally means, the, the, the name Patrick comes from a Latin term that means of noble origin. Okay? So he's thanking God for being raised in a Christian home. 
And so he's so grateful for the gospel that he even goes to seminary and he learns all he can about the gospel and what Jesus has done for him in the Bible. But not long after that, he then begins to have these dreams of the Irish. They're coming to him in the dream and they're saying, holy boy, we need you. And it wells up in him and he can't shake it. And this desire to bring the gospel to these people that he had once hated was so strong that it built up like a fire in his bones. And so he gathers a team of believers and he trains them. And then they they get trained up and these brave people, they receive the blessing of the church and then they're commissioned to take the gospel to this dark island full of people so far from God, but they were close to him. Remember, Patrick had learned their language. He knew their culture. He'd learned it from the inside out. These people were far from God, but they were close to him. And he did, it's, it's, it's said that from the moment Patrick and his team set foot on the island, that it was, that island was never the same again. But it wasn't easy. The, the, he experienced, they experienced extreme adversity. Patrick was actually imprisoned multiple times, and he escaped multiple times. He actually has a reputation for being kind of like an escape artist. And Patrick writes this, these are his words, daily I expect murder, fraud, or captivity, but I fear none of these. The greatest gift in my life is to know and love God. To serve him is my highest joy. You hear the worship? And in just 30 years of preaching the gospel, baptizing converts, and appointing clergy, Patrick saw over 120,000 Irish baptized and more than 300 churches planted. He died on March 17th, 461 A.D., but his witness to the love of God in Christ and to the Irish continues to spread throughout the world. Patrick didn't harbor bitterness against his captors. He didn't stand with the demonic powers and principalities that would condemn them and just say, you are the wicked heathen, we are the good guys. He leaned into the voice of the Holy Spirit who sang out, let the nations be glad now, I'm not just telling you to redeem a holiday, <laughs> especially I want to because it completely misses the point, right? <laughs> I, I want to recapture and even recommission you this morning, though, rekindle the power of the Great Commission that God's given us all. Like Patrick, you've been blessed to be a blessing. You don't have to go across the world to, someone who's, to find someone who's far from God, though, right? Like it begins with taking this good news to your neighbor. And yet, there are those who have little to no access to the gospel in our world. And in fact, less than a year after reading Piper's book, I Let the Nations Be Glad, I found myself immersed in one of the most unreached people groups in the world in a place called Bandung, Indonesia. And I spent a summer there, and it was the most difficult summer of my life. I'd never even been out of the country before, and as our country went to war with the Middle East that year in 2003, I found myself in a different kind of battle in the largest Islamic country in the world. But that summer, God broke my heart for global lostness. And he lit me up with his desire to let the nations be glad. And it's been a, a priority for us as a church to partner with solid church planting efforts in some of the most unreached regions in the world. And so many people actually seem to think that we kind of like come from some like large organization and there's like some fund that's like funding everything, you know, monetarily. And I just want you to know that is not the case. <laughs> I think I, whenever I hear that, I kind of laugh a little bit. But um, you need to understand that it's your generosity that fuels our mission. Yours. 
yours right here. Like, in fact, your generosity is what fuels the mission of many other churches. It's actually not that we are funded, but we are the funding people, right? It's the other way around. We're not funded. We do the funding. As a church, we've always committed the first and the best of our resources as like a tithe toward outside church planting. Now, you might say, why would we give like this? Like, isn't what we're doing here important? Yes, it is. Like, isn't all the money that we give here, is, doesn't it go towards making disciples that make disciples? Yes, it does. Don't we need more money? Yes, we do. But, guys, this isn't about fundraising. This is about the king and his kingdom. Like, this is about being a disciple of Jesus and partnering with him in what he's doing in the world. We're a part of something way bigger. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This is about faith. This is about partnership. This, we have been blessed to bless. So this is all a part of the vision that God's placed in front of us as a church, and that vision continues to require generosity. So I've told you before that currency of heaven is faith. And so our faithful and even sacrificial generosity goes way further than you can imagine when it's placed in the hands of a faithful king, right? And so we're going to close this morning, but as we do, I want to I highlight a new partnership opportunity that we have um, to see the darkness pushed back in some of the most unreached areas of our world, okay? Um, so I want you to uh, meet the Park family. Gosh, I love this family. So this is Peter and Grace Park, and these are their children. They've got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old, and they also have a uh, soon-to-be adopted, I don't know how old he is now, three maybe, four? Anyway, I can't remember. But he is, they have been fostering him, and they are actually in the process of adopting him, and they're waiting for those papers to come at any, uh, any moment. Um, but Peter and Grace became good friends of Hannah and I when we were in North Carolina at the Summit Church. We were on staff together. Um, Peter was the campus pastor of the location that I was working at there in North Carolina. Um, he was actually my boss in a way, and I, I love this guy. And yes, his name is Peter Park, a.k.a. the Asian Spider-Man. So uh, the Parks, though, have recently taken a massive step of faith to move to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia to establish a church planting epicenter for one of the largest unreached areas in our world. And so Kuala Lumpur is the largest city in Malaysia with, uh, I believe the metro city area has like over 9 million people. It's predominantly uh, Muslim, but um, you can, I think we've got a map up. We can show you kind of where it is. Um, you can see that Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia is right here, and we actually, so where I was talking about in Indonesia, this is where Bandung is right here. So you can see that it's pretty close relatively, um, and just the, the, the level of lostness in that area, but the opportunities within KL or Kuala Lumpur are very high because there aren't as many restrictions, and so they can actually create an epicenter and a hub for church planting and sending, and this is what they're after. This is what they want to do, and so we want to partner with them in that, and so uh, as we kind of wrap up the first quarter of 2023, I want to challenge you to give over and above your normal tithes and offerings this week so that we can give the parks a solid jump start um, as they answer God's call to literally go to the ends of the earth.
And so I'm really excited for what God's placed on their hearts to kind of be like an Antioch type place. Um, that's actually the heart that we have for this church as well. And so we're partnering with them in that with very, very similar DNA uh, and, and just like-minded, gospel-centered, want to see Jesus glorified. And so, um, and I, I got to tell you, I can't think of a better way to celebrate St. Patrick's Day than to um, bless church planting in the nations. Amen? So as we close, I want to pray for the Park family. Um, and just uh, I, to inform our prayers, I spoke to Peter on Friday, and they yesterday flew to Kuala Lumpur. Um, it was him and Grace and their three children. They couldn't bring uh, their foster child because the papers weren't signed yet, and so they're just waiting any moment. So I want to pray for that. But they are in Kuala Lumpur this week uh, to find a home. So they're on the ground. And uh, they're, they're looking for a neighborhood and where they're going to live. And, and their church is actually uh, going to be called Harvest Church. And so, um, the, uh, uh, yeah, I want to just pray for all of this to go smoothly. Um, and so that ever, all of the pieces fall into place. Uh, this is actually Grace's first time ever in Malaysia. So she's going for it, man. Um, she was a physician's assistant at Duke Hospital uh, and, and he was pastoring, like I said, at one of the largest churches in our nation. And so they are leaving all that security, and they are, like, laughing at the American dream and headed to the kingdom of heaven, right? And they're just, and I say, they're headed to expand the kingdom. Um, and I love it. So um, let's pray for them. I'm going to pray over them, and uh, I'm going to pray over them. Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 2, this is a, a verse that, that Peter has asked us to pray over them. And I also want to pray one of St. Patrick's prayers over them. It's a, a poem or a prayer that he called the breastplate. And so let's pray. 